Father Gregory here, uh, Assistant Director of the Thomistic Institute. Um, my old title used to be Assistant Director for Campus Outreach, which was longer, but somehow easier to say. Regardless, this is an off-campus conversation, and I am delighted to be joined by Sister Anna Ray. Thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. In this off-campus conversation, we are going to talk about human speech, not all of human speech or the various uses of human speech, but uh, a particular use of human speech. We might say a misuse of human speech. You gave a lecture about balderdash, um, which you defined as using a word in the appropriate manner or in the correct way, but not knowing it or not knowing that you're using the word in the appropriate manner or the correct way. Clarify. Slight clarification. Thank you. Using a word correctly. Yeah. Without understanding its meaning uh, yeah. and not recognizing it. Ah, okay. So really three conditions. Okay. So first, um, which makes balderdash so difficult to identify, is that we use words correctly um, even when we don't know the meaning of the word. And that's just kind of a fascinating phenomenon that you find first in small children, but we never really let go of that fascinating capacity to to speak correctly without knowing what we're, what we're saying. Ordinarily, when we're young, we recognize that we don't know things yep. and we can become inured to that not knowing or that, or that recognition that I, I generally don't know what's happening. So we become more and more competent and then we can fail to recognize our misunderstanding or our just not knowing a word. And we can be, as it were, um, I don't want to say addicted to using words correctly, but we can start to use words correctly and get pumped by, by the fact that they work, they do something. And kind of mysteriously, we can overlook the difference between a word working, doing its job, and then are appreciating what the word is pointing to or disclosing or what it could be disclosing for us. Okay. Is, do you think that disclosure is a good place with which to kind of begin, as it were, like mining um, the, like the particular use, as it were, or the particular purpose of human speech? I don't know. Like, what, what do you think is a good jumping off point for drilling down on what's actually going on when we speak? Is that? I think maybe my use of a word like disclosure, which is a rather archaic word, yeah. or, or it's not usually something that you find spoken on the street. Yeah. Um, Maybe just focusing on that a little bit is, is a good place to start. Okay. So like in speech, we aim to both manifest and communicate. I mean, in the sense that you want to show, but you also want to give at some level. I don't know if that, you know, tracks with the way that you would ordinarily describe human speech, but it strikes me that like in human speech, it's not sufficient just to like practice a kind of economy of words and concepts because it also engenders a kind of communion. So it entails a kind of contact, which, you know, like, which operates within the setting of a relationship and might even work to perfect a relationship, fortify a relationship, reaffirm a relationship. So it's like, I don't, yeah, might you describe what's going on with human speech? Yes. Another preposition, for. <laughs> for whom do we speak? Certainly we speak for others, and that is the initial and primary reason and hopefully that always remains the case that we're not just speaking for ourselves and letting other people over here um, but we can also speak just out of delight as it were um, when and I, I think holding these two 
this is an oversimplification, these two reasons for speaking apart for a moment is, is helpful. I can speak out of a kind of delight at experiencing something. Um, so I, I don't know, I, I see something, you know, in nature or in the city, <laughs> and it captures my attention. And as a, a kind of an overflow of that desire to, you know, to um, my delight in that, or just as, as another way of capturing this moment, I try to give a name to it. This in philosophy is often called poetic naming, where the intention is just to mark and not to capture so as to control, but sort of to, to enshrine whatever this thing is. I don't yet have a name for it, so I'm not yet going for accuracy. I'm just trying to do homage to what this thing is. And that movement of the heart, as it will, wherever that expresses itself in speech, I, I think, I don't know any child psychology, but I think that's very much a part of our initial movements at, at speaking. Um, certainly we're motivated by wanting to get something, so you know, we, we ask for coffee, whatever it is. Like, you know, so we, we learn words out of, out of a desire, um, like a preceding desire, but sometimes we reach for words we reach for either whatever word someone else can give or we just make up a word, not out of a preceding desire, but out of a consequent delight. Uh, and I think that that movement is, is, I don't know, it's not necessarily for me. It's almost like for the thing. This is a, a, almost a mystical account of, of naming that I'm, what am I trying to do when I name something? Um, it's for the thing, but it's also for my delight in the thing. And then happily, it can also assist someone else. Um, you know, when I give whatever name it is to this thing, that can direct someone else's attention to that very thing. Um, and then through conversation, we can work out this difficult task of trying to figure out, is what I mean the same as what you mean, even if our expressions or formulations differ? How's that as a start? <laughs> That's a good start yeah. So I'm thinking about then, okay, speech as a kind of composite reality, because it's got like a form and a matter um, in the like matter kind of category, I would class like the sonic quality of a word. There are words that thwap and there are words that soar and there are words that burrow and there are words that do all kinds of other things. Um, and I think that there is, not that all speech is onomatopoeic, but there is a kind of delight in correspondence. Like when the word fits the reality, right? That produces a kind of bodily delight that corresponds to the bodily feel. But then also like, you know, the formal sense in words are meant to convey concepts, not just in the sense that like concepts ride on the wings of the wordly wind, but in the sense that like they, they actually get, like they somehow get you concepts or they somehow bring, like how does that, I mean, could you talk a little bit about forms <laughs> as what embodied reason or forms as embodied concept? Or no, that's fine too. You tell me which. I, I think a, a place that I'd, I'd like to go is, is another distinction. So if you have the distinction between speaking for myself, for the thing, yeah. or for another person, yep. um, another distinction that is helpful and just to have in one's, one's toolbox if one's thinking about words is whether I have the word prior to having an experience 
to which that word corresponds or is adequate, um, or whether I have an experience and then I get the word. This is, um, it's hard for us to, to discern when in our initial reception of language, whether we get the word first and then the experience, the experience and the word. But one of the reasons why I think this distinction is, is helpful is because we can, we can get into difficulty if we are given a word without either having an experience to which it corresponds or um, we get a word without even noticing that it corresponds to some experience. We can get very adept in using that word without being mindful of the thing to which that word could be adequate. Mm-hmm. Um, the word to, and you know, when I when I say a word, um, even matter, just the word matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I if I say that, because I've, I've learned how to use that word, um, but I haven't thoughtfully sorted through my experiences, through my, you know, my memories, or you know, I haven't really attended to what's happening in the, in the internal form, really, in, in my intellect, uh, you know, actually more imagination than intellect. If I haven't really attended to that, I can use the word matter in a way that works in conversation, mm-hmm. even philosophically, I can use that. Um, but uh, the more I become accustomed to using words without also when I'm using them, pulling up, as it were, the, the image or the experience to which that might correspond, then the more I am apt to do that with other words and not even notice when there isn't a correspondence. Mm-hmm. So you could use the word matter, yeah. and it would be adequate to the thing, the experience, the image. So there's, there's adequacy almost on the, the subjective level is, is something that I think is more um, fruitful to think through. If we're going to talk about not, not conversion in our speech, but something like um, if, if there is any work to be done for each of us who speaks, everyone listening, <laughs> right? uh, then I think there's, there's some sort of interior work to be done here. I say, when I speak, am I... Not just why am I speaking, but how how am I speaking? When I speak, what's happening in my imagination? Yeah, I'm not suggesting that we go through life stuttering like this. Just you know, <laughs> uh, you know there should be fluidity of some sort. Yeah. But I think it's it's a good takeaway from thinking about speech to turn one's attention to one's own speech and say what's what's happening, not just to a third person external observer, but What's happening in, in me? Okay. I'm going to schematize some of the things that you just described in conversation with some of the things that I am at present thinking. Um, and this may or may not track, but it'll give us a base of operations from which then to explore the kind of therapeutic or kind of disciplinary measures which may uh, be entailed by this position. Okay. So there's the use of human speech right? But there can be a kind of temptation to describe it as if it were like a public good that was only deployed for purposes of suasion or rule or crass communication. But there's something more basic, which is going on in human speech. So you've described it as a kind of, you know, there's a, there's a phenomenon, there's a kind of, I don't know, ecstatic quality 
to our going out to that phenomenon. And our use of speech is part of what we as human beings do or like what we are prompted to do as a result of that phenomenon because there's like a kind of, um, yeah, there's a kind of fecundity to the experience where we want to testify or we want to share or at the very, you know, like we want to communicate in some way, shape or form as um, a kind of recognition or as a kind of benediction or as a kind of commendation or as a kind of something. But speech comes ready at hand as the fruit of an encounter of some sort, whether with a word or with a phenomenon, um, which then like moves us as it were by its very, um, yeah, fecundity or like life giving quality, uh, to then, to then take steps. And that, that speech act has elements of it that are, you know, like useful, uh, which I think some people would tend to focus on, but, but things which go beyond mere use, things which might be described aptly as, as beautiful or just wonderful, um, you know, like a, a kind of sense before the phenomenon that it, that it merits naming almost. I don't know if that tends too much in the direction of the poetic, but, um, yeah. I interject. Everything yep. that you've said so far seems to me to be this growing out of this poetic naming. Okay. Um, and it, it sounds beautiful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it is something that is hopefully in our experience, but all of us have encountered also lectures <laughs> or conversations that are more fraught, that are more rigid, that aren't as spontaneous, that don't arise from this sort of delight in um, phenomena, and then also delight in the ready at handness of words. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of my own preparation of, of TI talks yeah, yeah. can very often be uh, my attempt to say what I think people need to hear, not just what they would delight in, um, or rather when I'm preparing, and I, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, I'm just saying it's, it's one, one mode of, of speaking, mm -hmm. um, that I can use words to more or less adequately convey something that I think is good to say, but the, the motive of my speaking isn't so much delight, is it's, not, it's not purely just a delight in phenomena as, uh, as it is, ah, I think you need to hear this. Mm -hmm. This is, gets much more into the psychological than just into you know, philosophy of language or uh, meditation on language, as it were. But, yeah. but I have found that people receive words differently when the words are delivered with a different motive. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, may, maybe, I don't know if there's, we have to establish temporal priority or metaphysical priority to poetic naming. I mean, like, in a certain sense, we can cheat. Uh, well, I'm a theologian, so it's not cheating for me. It's just working within the bounds of my discipline. We know that all of our speech is downstream of divine speech, right? Like that the word is imparted, that the word is shared or bestowed, um, that the word is spoken in our very, you know, like nature, as it were, uh, making of us uh, not merely rational in the sense of receptive to rational communication, but rational in the sense of uh, constructing rational communication. Um, so there's like a word that goes before us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like you could do the genealogy of the word and say it's first, you know, like learned or it's first imbibed uh, or it's first heard, you know, before it's subsequently spoken. But then there's something of our experience of reality, which partakes of that, I think, you know, so like we're always... We're always hearing or we're always 
um, listening to words spoken from various corners. And I think that there's a kind of primordiality to that because I think it's only downstream of that that we think then of word and its use and then downstream of the fall that we think of its manipulation, that we think in terms of like, you know, shrill protest or, you know, crass suasion or whatever else. But I think that in a certain sense, we have to start there. And again, I don't know the nature of the priority, whether temporal or metaphysical or something else, but that there's like, there's a way in which the word first greets us or the way that like the word first addresses us, which I think is probably part of the nature of our responsibility. Like if we're going to speak of a need, and I suspect that we will get there in due course, of a need to purify speech, right? Or to, like you said in your lecture, get more granular with our speech. I think that there's a, there's a, there's a responsibility that's attendant upon that word by which we are first addressed. Like you could jump to a natural law argument and say like, you know, you have this faculty, this faculty is for this use, to use it otherwise would be perverted. And as a result of which, given your nature, you should do this and such a thing, which is like, it's true enough. I just don't think that many people in the pews are going to be like, that's the homily I wanted to hear. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, don't, talk- I don't think most people are, are convinced by the sort of, um, this is why you should care. I think with regard to speech, most of us find ourselves when we're still enough um, caring about the inadequacy of our speech to the thing, or perhaps are the inadequacy of our understanding of the thing to the thing itself. So I, I think some ways the, the best argument is just a matter of um, showing people my, by my own speech <laughs> how clear this can be, how, how deep my understanding, but rather um, you know, pointing to the speech of God, to the word of God, and presenting the ideal from which which we have fallen already, mm-hmm. but then um, allowing people to notice how um, really desire the desire for that um, that that my current way of being doesn't match the desire that I have to be in a different way. Um, so that's as, as far as introducing the yeah, yeah. the desire to, to have one's speech purified. Um, I, yes, absolutely think that there is there is a priority <laughs> in the speech of God, but also if we can talk about a kind of an ideal um, that we, at least in this life, never reach, if we can speak of some sort of ideal speech, we can we have that ideal in mind and, and in desire and heart, as it were, um, even if we never reach that, and even if we don't do, any, no, do anything to, to reach that. What I have called balderdash is, in large part, the speech that comes about when we don't care about that ideal, or rather when we, um, this is one way that balderdash can come about, and it's kind of the most sorrowful way um, that it can come about, but not irredeemable, <laughs> is that if we recognize, ah, I desire to speak in a way that shows this thing forth for what it is, both for its sake, my sake, and the sake of others, um, and as, a, as an imitation of God. Really. Um, if we look at that and then despair of it, or perhaps just say, I don't care about that, and the way that we can get onto that track of I don't care about it is often um, we get so caught up in a culture that requires us to say things when we don't have anything to say, uh, a culture that doesn't 
always present words as mini- manipulative or, um, you know, as, as, as kind of tools for, for battle. But I would almost say something a little, a little less combative would, is that words now seem to be just required for keeping up, for staying alive. Um, even if they're not combative, even if it's not against you, there's this sense of I need to throw out some sort of volume of words just in order to be, um, yes, to be relevant, um, not to be disregarded. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's, I don't know if that's a little easier to admit to, but I, I find it, I find it everywhere in our, in contemporary culture, not just in the past few years, not just, you know, because of the American political scene um, or anything, but it's, I think this is certainly a part of the post-industrial revolution. Yeah, yeah. No, I think <laughs> culture, that's yeah. thinking about like the prophet Jeremiah who describes the word as it were like a kind of fire in his bones and that his testimony is animated by this consuming, burning kind of like uh, interior pull or however you would describe it, but like it's something that needs to be preached or it's going to destroy him. Mm. Whereas I think now, like with, especially with AI, you know, you can write an academic article every three days, you know, um, or you can, you know, touch up an academic article every three <laughs> days. And I, I, I wonder to what extent people are writing articles or writing books because they are like a fire in their bones or because someone needs to write this book or because one need publish a book every year and a half. You know, like there are obviously various motivations. And I think that to the degree and extent that you tend to the more hyper utile and work a day, there's a kind of, yeah, depreciation of the quality of the testimony. Yeah, or the speech. For sure. One of my colleagues is of the mind that every academician should be limited to 100 pages of publication in his lifetime. Yeah. I think that would be a good thing to aspire to, but it would it would change the face of academia. I think for the for the better. It would yeah. also change. I mean, if you were um, this same colleague suggests, oh no no, different colleague suggests that we should have to pay for emails, or if we had to pay for emails, <laughs> we wouldn't send so many uh, frivolous ones. And then you could extend that also to say, if you had to pay for every word that you used, you would choose them more more deliberately. Mm. sparingly, as I begin listing words no, <laughs> after no. your fashion. There's one other reason that I think in contemporary culture we, we tend to speak. Sometimes we're in search of a rule or an algorithm to simplify everything. So it's not just that we, on the one hand, feel impelled to put out a certain volume of words in order to be relevant or admired. I think it's also that we're trying to cut down on the overwhelm of what's being thrown at us. So the more words you say, the more words I say, the more words everyone writes, the more information, and in, in quotes here, uh, is thrown at us. And that is, uh, we're, we're in a sea of information, we're in a sea of facts that are largely disorganized and we don't know what to do with them so i think everyone whether we realize it or not is in search of a way to sort through this sea of words to recognize which ones are relevant which ones are are not relevant 
so there's kind of multiple reasons why we're why we're speaking you know that we're, our, our words are in search of both the right word for this moment but also the right algorithm the right rule to clear my attention for those things that are better however we conceive better um so let's think then about yeah, like speech is therapy, not in the 21st century sense of therapy, but in like the 4th century BC sense of therapy. Um, so, so here's a working model and I'd be, I'd be interested to hear how you critique it or how you perfect it or how you cast it out entirely. Um, so I think that part of the reason for which we use speech, you know, like you said, in addition to communicating with others, in addition to this kind of um, poetic experience or ecstatic experience of the good as nameable, um, I think that there's a way in which we recount to ourselves the story of our own lives as a way by which to refine that story progressively over the course of those lives. So we're rational animals, we're discursive, we're progressive, we're time-bound, we experience our lives in those terms. Uh, but we're constantly not, not only just living our lives, but we're interpreting our lives, and part of interpreting our lives is narrating it back to ourselves. Um, so there's a sense that, like, for instance, I might you know, spend some time in prayer in silence before the Blessed Sacrament. And then I might tell the Lord what I think about him, about myself, about various ways in which um, I may feel prompted to respond more adequately to the call. Um, but I find that speaking, kind of like loosing my tongue as a way of loosing my mind, as a way of loosing my heart. Um, and so there's a disciplined way in which it can be done. And there's a, an undisciplined way, or I should say maybe there's a more or less true way of pursuing this type of course, and then there's a more or less false way of pursuing this course. And people might have various motivations for doing it falsely, whether buffering yourself from the difficulty of the present, or whether concealing from yourself the trauma that you aren't ready to confront, or, you know, you can you can spin out various different circumstances in which that might be be applicable. But I think that, like, part of this, this motivation for truth-telling, for truth-speaking, is for, like, the, the therapeutic dimension, like the reconciliation interiorly, which corresponds to the reconciliation exteriorly in calling each thing by its right name. Um, and in, you know, like recognizing or, or whatever, like receiving, you know, that calling by of each thing by its right name. Um, yeah. I don't know what you think about, yeah, this like therapeutic dimension of human speech, or maybe this human integrative dimension of human speech. I don't know if that tracks with thoughts that you've had or things that correspond to this line of reasoning. I haven't thought of it previously, but I think we're doomed if speech isn't therapeutic, <laughs> um, or at least if it can't, it can't become, and if it's not naturally therapeutic. Um, just to offer some commentary on, yeah. on what you've just said, though, uh, in a piece that I won't name by Harry Frankfurt, <laughs> um, Frankfurt looks at something that's called a bull session, and his his way of describing a bull session, I think that's a conversation um, ordinarily amongst men um, in which everyone tries out hearing themselves saying certain words. And in his account of it, the people in this bull session aren't primarily concerned about um, saying the right thing. They're, they're concerned about using it in conversation. So there's an experience of my using a word and and also recognizing your response to my using that, but also recognizing what's it like to say that? And you're 
narrative or it's more your imaginative, imaginary, imaginary account of, of saying things, you know, in prayer to the Lord. Presumably that's, you're using speech about yourself, also about God. But there's a part of speaking it that brings another experience. So there's the experience that you're trying to articulate, but then there's, there's also the experience of speaking it. And that's an important experience that we often don't attend to. That's kind of commentary one, commentary two, or just point two, is that we are not intended to speak alone. Where we are, you know, speech is, you know, meant to at least be overheard mm-hmm. or ordinarily, and most of our speech begins very vague. Um, our, our understanding of things is very vague, and it is in the rough and tumble conversing with other people whether they intend to correct us or not, we pick up on, on people's responses to what we say and refine our use of those words, but also our understanding of those things that we're trying to, trying to name through that. I think that's it. Nice. All right. Well, then that's like pursue the course. In, in your lecture, you were talking about various ways in which one might, um, yeah, guard against balderdash or uh kind of clean up balderdash or generate a human culture you know, like familiarly or socially or politically whatever in which balderdash balderdash isn't tolerant you were talking about your classroom um and the way in which your students are trained to detect and destroy <laughs> um no <laughs> so i guess like i mean just at the level of praxis um Different people come from different places. They're inclined constitutionally or temperamentally in different ways as regards human speech. There might be those who just tend to be overblown. You know, like there might be those who tend to speak at 175 words per minute. There might be those who are hesitant and never actually come to discern what it is that they think because they've never spoken it out. There might be those who are embarrassed at the prospect of saying something wrong. There might be those who are born ideologues. You know, they just glom on to whatever the most recent thing is. And they just change the flags on their front porch on a biweekly basis, you know, for whatever, you know, it's just like there are people, we're just, we can be inclined in various, in various ways. Is this the type of thing where you think, you know, like acknowledging balderdash as a problem, confronting balderdash as a potential vice is going to look differently in each human situation? Or do you think that you can distill certain principles which help to convict us of the problem that it poses and then facilitate a kind of what ongoing confrontation with it? Mm-hmm. Uh, just a clarification to begin this yeah, yeah. is my classroom is not a uh, hunt and destroy okay. uh, that's, that's environment. At least said. I hope it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at your classroom evaluations the other day. And ah! it's seen, no. <laughs> um, but okay, so can can we kind of normalize or or schematize a way to respond to balderdash is that a fair restatement of your question so this would be another restatement would be like i think of this in particular with irony um so most people have the memory of 10 years ago everyone spoke ironically between the ages of like 18 and 28 and it was actually like very destructive of human discourse for a while it you know offered the opportunity for a quick laugh it it was profoundly isolating and i think that it kind of like gradually caught up to all of us Mm -hmm. to the point where like sometimes i would reach across and be like because I couldn't tell. I don't know. Yeah, and as a result of which, like, I couldn't build on that. You know, not that it's just like, let us say things together so that we can build upon, but, like, I couldn't connect, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, which is profoundly just 
disorientating, however you're supposed to say that word, disorienting. Um, so like when it comes to balderdash, you've, you've raised um, the alarm or you've sounded the alarm that potentially we're just using words um, for whatever reason, because they're subjectively satisfying, because we're trying to fit in, because other people are doing it, because we're not sufficiently critical of our own patterns, whatever. Um, are there ways in which we can call people like back into their humanity, like call people back into this kind of progress of adequation such that what we say corresponds to what is and that we can register that so that way we can be like reconciled to God and to, you know, our brothers and sisters? I think there are a handful of ways, but not everything will work on everyone equally. Yeah. Um, how can you generalize it? I think it's it's helpful for everyone to become aware of why I use words thoughtlessly. Why do I not care about understanding on those situations when I do not care? Um, you know, sometimes the response is I'm I'm too afraid to direct my attention to this. Um, you know, and so I can tend toward a despair because of that fear. Um, at other times, it might not be motivated by fear, but by a lack of delight in the ideal, by a, a, a failure to allow the desire for this kind of poetic naming for um, imitating, imitating divine speech, a lack of desire. Um, so I think that's one thing, is just to become aware of in me, not in the other person. Because <laughs> there's, an, there's an aspect of speech that is within the interior form that that a friend who knows me well might be able to pick up on on the movements of my heart but even then there's there's a lack of certitude even for the the individual too who's speaking i can not know why i'm saying what i'm saying so i would say everyone ought to at least in some moments not always be attentive to why it is that i fall into a kind of balderdash whenever I do, or just fall into a sloppiness with speech and a sloppiness with truth. So it could be rephrased as balderdash that is consciously committed is an issue of truth. That if I know what balderdash is, commit it, and don't care, then there is some sort of conversion that is awaiting. <laughs> um, so that sort of awareness of, of one's interior movements, that's really important. And I think it's also important to say that one should not begin a crusade to stamp out the balderdash of anyone else, <laughs> that it's a, it really is an individual matter. That being said, how one begins to move out of the fear of working on understanding things, or just being attentive to things better, or how one moves into caring about ideal speaking, ideal truth more, that requires entering into a conversation. So very practically speaking, um, say what you mean. <laughs> Try at least. Sometimes the flurry of words can mask a fear of saying what one, of trying to say what one actually means, sometimes. Like, anyways, I have to have 
possibility of multiple multiple motives. Um, I would. I don't know if this is well thought through enough to make it into a recommendation, but one of the things that began to fascinate me uh, seven years ago or so, um, about which time, around about which time, I started to go on a news fast. I realized that my that I was uh, not ingesting, it wasn't metabolizing all the words that um, that I was allowing to to go into my you know into my mind I just couldn't couldn't sort through it all and I I figured out okay I need to reduce the the input and reduce the flow as it were um so I told my students that they were my only source of pop culture <laughs> and that, that's kind of delightful for me and for them I think because at last they found someone who didn't already know the stuff that they knew and um it was delightful for me because they would say something, and if they just passed something along, I got to ask them the questions that would fill out the narrative. I learned about this uh, long-form podcast through my students, and I just started saying, you know, asking people, well, why do, why do you listen to that? And very few people had an answer for why they were attracted to this long-form podcast. So in the absence of their giving an answer, I started supplying some, at least in my imagination, it seems to me like we have a hunger for entering into conversations that are real. And what I mean by real is that they touch on questions that we genuinely have, not questions that we're supposed to have and therefore repeat um, and go on some sort of hunt for an answer that we don't really care about. We don't know why we care about it. But conversations that address questions that, that burn within us, where it bothers me until I have an answer, or at least that it bothers me until I can at least get the question right. So I think, backing up, we have a hunger for those sorts of conversations. It's much easier to listen to someone have a real conversation than it is to actually have a real conversation. So um, I don't want to say I recommend that people listen to long-form podcasts. <laughs> I don't know if this counts as one or not, but... Yeah, um, it's not long enough. But <laughs> With Joe Rogan out there producing like four-hour podcasts. There we go. Yeah. You mean this isn't going to be that long? Nope. <laughs> like, um, I, I think entering into the long-form conversation, um, probably not entering into a long-form podca podcast <laughs> like as a recommendation, but entering into those conversations is going to be therapeutic. I also think that at some point, turning off the podcast will also be therapeutic because listening to other people have the conversation that I ought to be having can be a barrier um, to, to growth. I can substitute listening to something for the work of reaching for the words to try to articulate in someone else's presence you know, articulate badly in someone else's presence what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get at. So I'm not going to say <laughs> news fast, you know, to to give a um, clarion call for that that battle, that war, that that action. But I do think it's important for each person to say what am I, um, what's what's filling my attention now that could be cleared out in order to make room or the work, maybe interior work, of understanding things more and 
seeking to articulate them better? Yeah, I think um, kind of judging my own experience, I don't listen to podcasts. I occasionally listen to audiobooks. Uh, my like typical listening content is, is speaking exercises for foreign languages that are required for whatever research is currently at hand. Uh, but I've noticed that there can be a kind of busyness that creeps in uh, through content, um, which makes it difficult to hear. I was talking to a friend recently, and she was saying there was something about like a, like a weekend retreat where there were so many activities planned where it actually it, it scared her because she couldn't hear God. Um, so I think there's a sense in which like, if we are going to discipline our speech, not just for the sake of discipline, but for the genuine sake of, you know, doing that for which we're made and having some, yeah, felt experience thereof, uh, then it will require of us a kind of asceticism of hearing, you know, or listening for that word. Um, yeah, I, I keep thinking of T.S. Eliot for whatever recently. Um yeah, he speaks of like the word which can only ever be heard in the desert. Um, yeah, there's like a sense in which, yeah, I, I do wonder in the 21st century whether or not we have deadened our ears or we have, you know, kind of, um, yeah, like weakened our ability maybe. I don't know exactly how best to describe it. It's like we're listening to so much, but as a result of which we can hear nothing. Um yeah. I don't think that this is typically considered among the din, um, but I think one of the reasons why we can be so exhausted just in a day or at any moment of the day is because we are not just awash in many words, but we're also trying to hear many different things. And I'm of the opinion that multitasking is impossible, or at least it's an illusion. And I think this applies principally to interior acts that I can really only pay attention. I can really only listen for one thing at a time. So we can be exhausted listening to something, the voice of another, um, the voice of Rosetta Stone or whatever you're using. And, and then also listening to how am I being heard? That sounds unduly complex, but I think we frequently do that. Um, especially in an, an era when everything is presented in images. So we're concerned about our appearance. And I use appearance broadly, not just as our physical appearance, but I, we're concerned about how am I coming across. So when I'm speaking, I can be concerned not about, not principally or solely about communicating the thing that I'm speaking about, but I can also be concerned about how will my words be received and therefore, how will I be received? I think about that with respect to rate of speech. So like a lot of folks listen to podcasts at two times speed, but as a result of which, it's easy to grow impatient with a somewhat plodding speaker. And I find that in my own speech, I, I've always been somewhat impetuous and impatient with my own rate. Um, but uh, yeah, there's, there's every encouragement at this stage to speak very quickly. But... If you speak quicker than you think, then you'll often fill in with rhetoric where there ought to be substance, you know, or whether, I mean, like rhetoric in the negative sense, but there can be good rhetoric, obviously. You teach it. Um, 
yeah, where there ought to be substance or when something ought to be said with fewer words. So it's better to direct one's attention to it, you know, like, yeah, that can be a real, a real temptation, I suppose. As they say, hundred nice. <laughs> percent. That's the, that's the, the rhetoric that's, in, that's injected. Yeah. 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 Rather than letting, letting the silence be, or just saying, yes, I'm moving on to another point. I mean, we have an abundance of filler phrases. Yeah. You know, I've, I've noticed that people say mm. the words, you know, with bewildering frequency. People still say like, they still say, um, they still say whatever else, but. Right. 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 And you know, have become, yeah, they're just the omnipresent. Perplexingly long filler phrase that I've noticed recently is, does that make sense? Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it makes sense. <laughs> like, no, I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I th sorry. Um, I think. So that, I, can I just add please. that, that if we're going to have the list of things that would help each of us to consider in our individual program of purifying our speech. Somehow aspiring to be more like the four-year-old kid who is unselfconscious, that would be a good thing. Mm. You can't just tell someone, stop worrying about what people think of you because it's, it's hard to just stop something without doing something else. Um, and I also don't want to say we should imitate the four-year-old in every aspect, but the spontaneous way that four-year-olds speak and just move throughout life like occurs within this, this context of you know that your father, or the Heavenly Father at least, beholds you with delight, and so everything you do and everything you say is going to be okay. Within that context... It's, a, it's possible to forget about how other people respond to you. Mm -hmm. Or maybe not to forget about it, but at least not to be principally concerned with that. I think if we could be freed from that concern for how I'm going to be perceived when I speak, I don't know what that would do to our rate of speech. <laughs> yeah. But I think it would, it would free us up interiorly. And it would probably reduce a lot of the, um, what I've called balderdash. Yeah. Not that it would reduce vagueness, not that it would reduce error, um, but that that error could be free to come out in conversation. And then we would more readily accept the refinements that come out through yeah, yeah. an honest interlocutor. And be willing to drill down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think maybe that gets at the, the basic, I mean, there's always a desire at the end of a conversation to identify the fundamental principle as if you have, you know, had the journey to the truth by way of experience. Um, but maybe one, one thing that I take from this conversation is that at root, there's a kind of insecurity in a lot of, you know, human life, which makes manifest a certain insecurity in human speech. And I think that this idea that like you've been entrusted with your life and you've been entrusted with your word specifically as a gesture of love, um, that this is the precise means whereby God intends that you work out your salvation in fear and trembling, but like a reverential fear and trembling with the recognition that I am nothing by comparison to his everything, that the word is on loan or that the word is a gift. Um, and that you try to make good use of a gift because God is delighted to see what you'll make of it, right? It's not a gift with strings attached. He's not an Indian giver. It's a gift which actually empowers or emboldens our human agency because that's the precise reason for which we're made. 
um, not as rocks, not as plants, not as animals, not as angels, as human beings. Um, and that like we as rational animals have this peculiar capacity for embodied speech, which is, you know, functional, but is also delightful, wonderful, which has a kind of sonic thwap, but also <laughs> has a capacity to communicate and to generate, like to, to generate communion as a result of which that you can like meet another and love another through or like with, I don't actually know the preposition that I want to use there by means of um, <laughs> X <laughs> words. Yeah. Yes. And I would add speech, our speech isn't just delightful in the father's eyes, but he also intends it to be delightful for us. So he delights in our delightful speaking, babbling, swapping, mm. spoonerizing. See, exactly. See, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think to the degree and extent that you can be critically self-conscious of the fact that you are babbling will often do, not wonders, but it will yield modest returns uh, lest you fall into, um, you know, ideology and demagoguery. Those for me are the big things that I'm worried about, like familially, you know, like in the, in the domestic setting, you know, like close to home, mm-hmm. but also like socially, politically, I mean, ecclesially, those are all, those are all threats because at the end of the day, if it's just about, you know, manipulation and control, then like, what's the point, you know? Because, like, we've got computers that do this stuff better, you know? So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Why lose a tongue that, you know, exists not for the reason that God created it? I just circle back another concern for demagoguery or any other um, less than ideal use of, of speech among men. That's concerning not only for, um, the political sphere, but also because we can't easily switch out of that mode when we speak among friends, um, yeah. when we or when we enter into prayer. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know where this falls within that order, but also when I think of myself. So the words that I use for others, to others, with others, tend to shape the way that I think of myself and also the way that I obviously speak, speak to God and even speak of myself to God. So there's another reason for care. You can say that if, if one cares how one speaks before God, or even if we have a desire to be completely vulnerable, completely um, four-year-old-ish before, before the Lord, before free before him, um, then how we speak outside of that intimate conversation also matters. Yeah. For the reason, and as we kind of come to a conclusion, just one, one last thought for me, and then if you have a final word or commendation, um, I'm thinking of the parable of the ten virgins, you know, five of whom are prudent and five of whom are not. Um, and I remember reading a commentary on that passage from, I've forgotten his first name, but his last name is Barclay, um, and he comments every book in sacred scripture. Uh, but his kind of homiletic note with which he concludes that passage is, there are some things which cannot be borrowed, and there are some things which cannot be had at the last minute. Um, and I think that's an especially beautiful kind of point of reflection for human convert, like for our own ongoing conversion. Um, it's funny when you were making mention of this professor's recommendations for, you know, like taxation of speech, uh, or for only having a hundred pages to publish. 
My only concern with 100 pages to publish would be like the concern of St. Augustine and the date of his baptism. You know, like when would you publish it? Because death comes suddenly. Um, and I think that there's, yeah, there's a sense in which with human speech, if it's going to heal and grow, it will do so typically according to human laws. And human laws often, you know, they, they dictate a kind of progress, slow grow. It just tends to be the shape of the thing. Um, so I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it, it might get you, you know, kind of at the, it might come for you at the end in the blink of an eye, right? Uh, but, but probably it's going to be something to which we are gradually sensitized um, so that like our efforts to purify speech will track with a deepened capacity to recognize our own um, yeah, carelessness or whatever it is. But that's the type of thing that requires like critical self-consciousness, like reflexive self-knowledge. It requires you to engage <laughs> in an honest way with yourself, the very person from whom you are at least likely to be genuinely honest or with whom you are least likely to be genuinely honest. So, yeah, keep your lamps alight and bring with you sufficient oil for the task. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So final thoughts, parting words, any things that you want to follow up on? You're like, nope, I'm not actually content to conclude. I have 15 <laughs> more minutes that I would like to drill down on this particular point. No, I'm, I, I, I'm I, docile. <laughs> I realized I was, I was dropping the volume of my speech, so that means I'm also coming to an end. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, or not I, but at least this conversation. <laughs> but I, I will echo just some of what your last comments were. Uh, speech is a gift, and um, gifts can be taken away. So I don't want to say memento mori, <laughs> like speak yeah. with the knowledge that there will be a time when all the, the pages, all the, all the words that we have used um, will be brought to silence. Um, that's, that is one thing that I think is well, maybe one, one meditation. <laughs> the bridegroom will come. There will be a time when you can no longer buy oil. Um, but also there's something risky about just opening one's mouth at all. When you use a word, when you use many words, it's, it's, a, it's a definite act. You're, you're, you're saying something about yourself whenever you say, whenever you open, say you know, what, what you choose to talk about, whether you choose to speak. There's some sort of laying oneself out publicly through speech. And that is an expression of the heart, um, an expression of one's desire. And it's a gift. It's a risk. Yeah, yeah. There it is. Yeah. I think that gets back to why people like podcasts. Because podcasts are a kind of risk in the sense that podcasts are often, not like half-baked, but podcasts are open-ended. And I think people are welcomed into open-ended speech. And I think that people are worried about overly formulated speech for fear that it's not true. Life never follows our script. <laughs> so we shouldn't even try. <laughs> exactly. So for the next episode of Off Campus Conversations, we'll be talking backwards in Pig Latin. Uh, <laughs> that way. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Turning to you, the listener, the viewer, uh, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. I think that the conclusion was for you not to listen to any further podcasts. So I would encourage you to subscribe, whether on YouTube or your podcast app, but that would be a, a contradiction from what has gone uh, through, you know, shot through the conversation to this point. So yeah, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on off campus conversations.